0: Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water how to make sustainable irrigation can water bring peace how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the u.s what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel NewTech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. I'm a stand-up comedian who spent the last couple months traveling around the country talking to scientists about life, about the meanings of life, about how we got here, about what makes us who we are, why we make the decisions we do. It's been an incredibly exciting process thus far. It's been uh, one of the things that I've been most excited about in my entire career, actually. I've been learning so much. I've been learning about things and disciplines that I didn't even know I was interested in uh, before starting this. And I've been learning a lot about things that I already thought I, had, I was pretty knowledgeable about. And uh, the whole process has really changed the way that I uh, look in, uh, at the world and perceive certain things. And it's really uh, just brought a lot more questions to mind and answered many questions as well. And we've had lots of laughs along the way. I wish I would have known how well all of these were going to go when I started this a couple months ago because I was a hair nervous um, in the first couple of episodes when I I first started because I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Uh, Little did I know they were all going to go fantastic, including this first one, which was uh, with a friend of mine, Marty Hazleton, who's a professor at... Uh, the University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA, and she's an inter- interdisciplinary evolutionary scientist who is um, very well known for her work on studying the social effects of ovulation. You can't read a evolutionary psychology or biology book these days without coming across some of her work. She is fantastic. She's funny. She's awesome. Um, I'll I'll get into in the episode a, a little bit about how we met and how I got into um, learning about this stuff years ago, and uh, I'll be sharing a little more about my backstory through each episode as time goes on. So you'll be learning about me and things like uh, this injury that I've <laughs> been going through and breaking both of my feet, and and uh, all of it. it's a bit of it's been a bit of a personal journey for me as well which uh was a bit unexpected and a pleasant surprise so i really hope you guys enjoy this i hope you spread the word for me i'm just doing this as a passion project it's something that i'm exceptionally excited about i don't want to sell ads or anything like that i'm just having each guest plug a charity each week and uh, i i just really um wanted to do something that i cared about Um, so I, I hope you guys care about it. I hope you um, help inspire me to keep making more of these and send me some feedback and questions and thoughts. and And I hope we can get a conversation about all of this stuff started. So enjoy the first episode of the Here We Are podcast
1: are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are
0: hello everybody and welcome to the very first episode of the here we are podcast my name is shane moss if you don't know me I'm a stand-up comedian who um, has always been slightly interested in science and then uh, a few years ago got um, very deeply interested in, um, in particular, evolutionary psychology and biology and started trying to work some stuff into my act and, and, and work on some other projects and in that process. I got to meet a lot of um cool interesting people like my very first guest Marty Hazelton who is with me here today. Hello. Hello Marty. Hello. um professor of psychology at UCLA and um and she's going to be speaking with us uh, a little bit about what she does. I um <laughs> I got well I want to ask you how you got interested in this in the first place because when I when I first got intro and and now you know I'm kind of trying to expand my knowledge and learning about a little bit about neuroscience science and some of that stuff. But I mean, when I first started learning about evolutionary psychology, it just like kind of hit me um, like a ton of bricks and just kind of changed my worldview a little bit and kind of explained so much. To I, I think uh, one thing that I think about all the time and it's very overly simplified and um and everything else and i and it could be criticized i suppose but there's a um author in the 1800s who first had the written quote i think it was samuel butler um bueller something like that had a quote um the the chicken is just the eggs way of making another egg and sometimes it's like i understand it on an intellectual level but sometimes i just sit back and look at life and think about that sure. like what it means.
2: right and why do we do all these weird things that we do and such a
0: roundabout way
2: and yeah around yeah right in such a roundabout way <laughs> and like, and how and how can we understand what we might or, or have another view on what appears to be mundane so you can imagine that you um, came down as, you know, an anthropologist from Mars and are observing human behavior. Oh,
0: absolutely. And
2: because that's what we do when we observe non-humans here on planet Earth is we notice all of the strange patterns but then we can reflect back on ourselves and notice that we're doing some pretty weird stuff too.
0: Right, because well if you were an anthropologist visiting from Mars, you would you would look, I mean what you would observe what's happening and maybe what's happening on the underlying uh, evolutionary drives and, um, and how that's changed the brain and everything, um, you might look and, and see. I mean, here's a here's some emo kid who is acting like he doesn't have a penis in <laughs> in an attempt to use his penis on other women, or or maybe a better example is uh, you you see like a you see a construction, a mouth, con- you walk by a construction crew and some guy barks out a cat call and an anthropologist would be like, oh, that was a mating call. <laughs> but really, there's no chance that's going to lead to mating and maybe what's happening is he's elevating his social status amongst his friends and maybe that's paying off re- produ- productively yeah, later yeah, Perhaps,
2: on. I don't think that we know everything uh, there is to know about what's motivating that particular Construction behavior. workers? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I mean, it just—I look back on my own life. It could for be example. that they're
2: overestimating the chances that that would actually have a ah, positive
0: effect. Can we? <laughs> I would love to talk about that and talk about how your earlier work mm-hmm. and how you got yeah. into all of that. But I, um, I just, just I, I just want the audience to know, like, kind of where I'm coming from, and part of it is um, <laughs> as your dog's moving is better around mm-hmm. the room. Um, part of it is i look back at my own life and every newspaper interviewer or whatever that asked mm. me how and why i got into comedy i'd be like well i you know friends suggested it when i was little and and um it was just something i cared about the art form and all of this it's just all about like i'm passionate about the art form and but i look back and i i remember being kind of a um, insecure teenager who was obsessed with girls and didn't had no idea how to get my hands on one of these things and <laughs> and, um, and trying to figure that out and I remember being like well one day I'm going to be on TV and I'm going to get it. and then hasn't the girls been who- without its reproductive <laughs> be- benefits well birth control withstanding. yes um so uh, so it's really just changed the way that I've looked I mean the idea that uh, you know I said at the beginning of this podcast episode, I'm doing this because I'm deeply interested in science and all this, but I'm also possibly given the opportunity to advertise my intelligence or sense of humor or whatever else, and maybe maybe some lady is listening somewhere the idea that I'm sitting here like talking to a married woman um over the internet so that maybe some lady that I've never met <laughs> could yeah. could. Maybe uh, eventually my sperm could get to one of her eggs, which is a thing that I don't consciously even want to happen. I don't even want children. That's just I can think about that all day long. So anyway, that's where I'm coming from in a very roundabout way of talking about my interests. Right,
2: but right. Um, okay. Um, your turn. It's my turn. Okay. Um, so... How did I get interested? How did what was my path? Um, so my dog is making a lot of noise here. Let's oh, see. If he's we can okay. Biscuit. <laughs> um, he's actually can. he's actually mating with his dog pillow right now.
0: Um, I, I'm, I can edit out biscuit Good. if it gets too yeah. crazy. Okay.
2: Um, so I was, you know, I mean, I was too trying to understand what was going on. Um, you know, as a young person with everybody else that I was interacting with. So it's like, you know, what is up with girlfriends treating each other? So, you know, in such a nasty way. Um and so I was trying to figure that out. I was also trying to figure out why boys and girls seem to be so different and why they wanted different things. Um, I, Which
0: is a very controversial. Subject it is a controversial
2: space. subject, but it seemed patently obvious to me that there were some on average sex differences. Of mm-hmm. course, there's overlap, and you know some women are greater than men, and you know whatever you you know the standard story. Um, but it seemed to me that there was some there were some differences that were very prominent as well, and and uh, and I was very curious about those things. Um, in college, I took a course on um, I think it was called the evolution of sexuality Um, as a psychology course. And it was basically all about non-human animals. Um, And we talked about sex differences. And we learned about Trivers' parental investment theory, which is one of the big theories for understanding sex differences. Trivers is like
0: this madman genius.
2: Trivers is is indeed um, a madman genius. He would probably embrace the label madman at least the (laughs) madman part. Um, But he... You know, one of the three chapters of his dissertation, all three of which have had a huge impact in understanding the evolution of, of human social behavior. At Harvard, uh, he was a student at the time. Um, was on parental investment theory, um, and which, which, uh, which, yeah, just to just the briefest synopsis um, that the sex that invests more, that's obligated to invest more, in reproduction should be choosier about the individuals with whom they mate. So um, if a female, for example, human female, must invest nine months of pregnancy and then at least in the ancestral past, many more years of direct care, of obligatory direct care, so breastfeeding for up to four years, um, then it stands to reason that um, uh, over evolutionary time, women would have shaped the psychology that that they use to choose mates their, their psychology would have been shaped to be very choosy right. about with whom they mate since they're going to be it's going to be a requirement that they invest so much in each individual offspring now for men on the other hand it's not a requirement men often do invest tremendously um, as much or more than their female partner but they're not obligated to so they could they could you know they could get out you know after
0: you men, donate and them, sperm and never could, even see the person and I mean and, no, no, obviously not in the ancestral past not but. in the
2: ancestral past and so that's a, a whole other sort of right. interesting puzzle about what motivates that um because we can understand what motivates sex and what motivates interest in having sex because it in the ancestral past produced babies yeah. and men who had sex with more women probably produced more babies it wasn't necessarily the case that women who had sex with more women i mean women, <laughs> women who had sex with more men right um, had more babies themselves, lo- and so just think about the you know think about over the course of a year, if a woman had five sex partners, um, you know, a woman within her fertile years had five sex partners, how many offspring is she likely to have? Probably just one. Yeah. Um, whereas a, um, a man who had sex with five women over the course of a year, how many offspring might he have had? He might have had five, um, and so you would expect that there were because of these differential consequences and because of the differential um, potential reproductive benefits of engaging in sex with many partners that men and women have somewhat different desires.
0: Right. I like your um, island um, analogy. Um, You know, if there's one woman on an island and if there's 99 women on an island but I I might be butchering your analogy but um
2: well so there's um uh so um we have the benefit of of you having sat in on some of my lectures and um and that's been fun especially um when you provide the comic relief that I (laughs) attempt and (laughs) often don't do so well with
1: um, but here. you
2: might have, um, you might be remembering a cartoon that I show. There's a oh, is that a guinea is? pig who, um, male guinea pig named Sooty, because he was a little gray, little gray and white, cute guinea pig, um, who escaped from his pen. They keep the guinea pigs at this um, zoo in New Zealand, I believe it was. They keep the male and the female guinea pigs apart for good reason, because they don't want a million baby guinea, guinea right. pigs. Um, and. What he, got, he somehow got out of his pen, and they were looking around. They couldn't find him. Um, finally, they find him fast asleep in the female cage, <laughs> having mated with each of the 30 individual females in that cage. Um, and so how many offspring is Sooty going to produce? Potentially up to 30 offspring. Now, um, if, if the you know, tables were turned and one female got into a, a cage with 30 right. males, she's not going to necessarily... You know, produce any more offspring. Um, so, and the the story goes that they, you know, they took Sooty out and put him back in his cage, and you know, tired and he never tired little fella. Tired little fella, but he never really recovered psychologically, <laughs> <laughs> having enjoyed the benefits of
0: of <laughs> right.
2: so many females um, to mate with.
0: All right, so you got you took this class and then decided. Oh yes, thank that- you. Um,
2: so, I took this class. I learned about parental investment theory as applied to non humans. Um, and I, I raised my hand in this class. This was, I was an undergraduate at the time um, at a Catholic university, although I'm not Catholic. And I asked my professor, whose name was Professor Moriarty, um, Professor Moriarty, d- might this apply to humans? Because the whole time the wheels are turning in my head, and I had me thinking, you know, this could potentially explain a lot. And um, he said, nobody's really looking into that yet maybe
0: what year was this
2: mm that was 19 gosh that was probably 1990 i graduated from college in 1992 and so i might have taken that class in 1990 because
0: this is a relatively new ish Real, as yeah. As, as and and the so the, the,
2: the truth of the matter is, is that the person who was ulti- ultimately became my graduate PhD mentor, David Buss, had been doing some work on this. But it was, be,
0: I'll, I'll be doing a podcast with him soon. Some great. Of the future yeah.
2: Great. Great. So, great. so um, he can tell you about some of the early history, which is really interesting because it was so controversial. And the controversy continues. I can talk about how that affects my life, even how it affected my life today, this morning. In any case,
0: (laughs) if you want to talk about that, that yeah, well, we'll We'll see how it goes. um,
2: Anyway, (laughs) um, things that I thought were not so controversial. So I started off studying sex differences, and then I decided, ah, that's kind of a pain. You know, everybody just comes up with all these alternative explanations. I think that there's a, you know, this really good evolutionary explanation for the thing that I've documented, that I predicted in advance, and that I did the empirical work in order to document, and then. Um, there are 5,000 alternative explanations. And so I stopped doing that. I said, this stuff is too controversial. And so I started studying um, how women's ovulation cycles affect their behavior. And it turns out that that is no less controversial.
0: <laughs> um,
2: and so <laughs> we could like, return to that. If like, you
0: want to. Um, uh, are pregnant women racist?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's not my research, and I did, did probably not really interpret the the work in quite that way. That's but, how a
0: comedian interprets sophisticated amount of work. Is right, they, we pick out things <laughs> and then butcher their work and misquote yes. them and get them in trouble. Right, so thank you for doing my yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um.
2: Anyway, so I, th- you know, that planted a seed in my head, and I thought, well, then somebody needs to be doing this because this is just is much too interesting, and Can so you- I, I.
0: Could you first um, talk about your, earlier, um, just the, like the error management stuff? Sure. Because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mentioned the um, The chicken and egg thing. Right. You have uh, something that you told me a while back, which is, um, and you can take a bit to get there, Mm -hmm. is the uh, gender differences in regret um, uh uh, of past relationships or whatever. If I could, uh, because that... Blew my mind, and it's something I've repeated to a lot of people in conversation. I don't know if it's oh, your okay. work or not, but I first oh, heard yeah. about it from um,
2: you. Y- yeah, um, we published we published some on that. Um, so maybe
0: talk about maybe error management. Well, sure, I can talk into- about. So
2: my earliest work. So I started my PhD after figuring out that evolutionary psychology was a thing that might actually be happening. Um, because I thought that I was going to have to go train in animal animal biology and then maybe I could dabble in human work as well, um, because it wasn't clear to me that this was something that you could do with humans at the time. But um, anyway, I found a path and discovered that it was an emerging approach. Um, and my first project um, that was, wasn't really my first project. I did a lot of projects that weren't terribly successful, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's everyone that's, in every job. I, uh, I would hate for you know, people to see and, my first stand up. set. And, um, you know, in science, you do you, you you it's very rare that that you hit on something that is going to be of interest and um, potentially generative right away. And so I, Can wasn't I my first, I'm sorry mm-hmm, to interrupt. Yeah, sure.
0: But I was actually this is something that I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought up because I've often thought about how frustrating. It might be yeah. that you get these grants, you make these predictions, something that maybe seems obvious considering uh, you know everything else you've already learned, and then you go and study something and then just hit a complete dead end.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many times I've gotten to the point where it's time to analyze my data, and it's not very exciting. The outcome <laughs> is not very exciting. Um,
0: and, and what is... So uh, this is another important part. Uh, Like when we're talking about um, gender differences, Mm -hmm. uh, we're obviously not saying all females and all. So what what is considered significant when you're looking at Uh, data? Is it saying like sixty percent? Oh yeah.
2: Well, that all depends. So um, a tiny difference could be deemed statistically significant, which is the thing that will. Allow your paper typically allow your paper to be published in a scientific journal. A very small difference um, could be statistically significant if you include enough people in your study. So if you have, uh, you Large know, if you if you have size. like, yeah, so if you like run, you know, gigantic internet studies with twenty thousand individuals in a bunch of different countries, a bunch and of, yeah, yeah, then, um, um, or just within the United States, you know, and you're just test and look to see, say let's say you're interested in sex differences and you just have a long questionnaire and you test um, all of the questions to look for differences between men and women. You, you, It might be the case that you almost always find a difference, but the size of the difference is very small. So there are two things that you want to ask um, when somebody tells you about something like a difference between men and women Um First, you know, was it statistically reliable or is it robust? So can you fi- can you find it over and over again? Um, is it replicable? Um, and then the second thing you want to know is how big is it? Um, and so some sex differences are big. Um, the difference in height between men and women, that's considered to be a large difference. Um, the difference in um, some of the cognitive differences, um, so verbal fluidity, um, is something that differs between men and
0: women. People are already getting a sense of
2: that. <laughs> but it's a me. small difference overall. Um, um, so men tend to do better in some forms of mathematical performance, but um, I, I should say it tends to be investigated in, in adolescence, so that would be boys. Whereas girls are actually better at doing the computations, but those tend to be really small differences. Um, so Where are the big differences? They actually tend to center around a lot of them center around sexuality. So one of the biggest psychological sex differences, um, at least we think that it, you know, there's an underlying psychological phenomenon, is the frequency of masturbation. (laughs) Men more than women. No, I I, I, I know that I'm shocking you. (laughs) And so, so the big sex differences are those that are going to not surprise you. Right. Um, The the smaller ones are.
0: why those differences, you know, and kind of the evolutionary explanations and and, and and, behind them
2: That's right. Interest in casual sex, also a pretty large um, sex difference. That doesn't mean that women don't want to ever have casual hookups. Um, And it doesn't mean that men are ever um, averse to having them, but there's a a fairly substantial sex difference. Um, And that sex difference has at least some degree of cross-cultural universality. So big study done by... um, David Schmidt, who is also a former student of David Buss, some years ago, um, where he went around the globe and asked in as many places as he could um, people to respond to the question, how many sex partners would you like to have over the next 30 years? Um, And he found a marked sex difference in nearly every place that he looked. Um, In no case was it ever reversed so that women were saying that they wanted to have more sex partners than men. Um, you know, believe it or not, I, I tell my students about that study, um, and they're like, "Oh, we're so shocked!" You know, tell us something that you know, that we didn't already know, and then I go on to explain that that even that finding um, is controversial. Right. Um, because well, because people, people
0: will try to say women are raised a certain way, and so they're more embarrassed to maybe give a certain number. That's
2: right. So are women telling the truth? Right. Um, and there are there's some evidence that women might be. Understating to right. some extent, and and you know maybe men might overstate, um, but that evidence really pertains to the number of sex partners people have actually had. Um, so there's there's at least one study that I know of where women believe that they're connected to a lie detector, and when you ask them that, they'll tell you that they've had more past sex partners ah. than when they are, have, are not detected, not connected to the lie detector. So there probably are some reporting biases, but it's hard to believe that. You know, those reporting biases would be, you know, I mean, just all of the evidence. So there's that, there's the masturbation frequency, there's the fact that, you know, behaviorally you can see that, um, you know, men are more likely to accept an offer for casual sex than women are. So there's the famous Clark and Hatfield study um, done some time ago on a college campus in Florida. Florida. Yeah. Um, men and women, um, confederates of, you know, accomplices of the researcher, attractive men and women walked up to members of the opposite sex and said, hey, I find you very attractive. Um, I've been noticing you're on campus. I find you very attractive. Um, Would you? And then they asked them one of three questions. Um, Would you go out on a date with me? Would you come back to my apartment with me? Or, and this was all randomly assigned, or would you come back to my apartment and have sex with me? Um, And if you just with respect to the last question, 69% of the men said yes, and 0% of the women said yes.
0: But just for a date, it was like 50 50.
2: For just for For a date, it was 50 50. And, um, and I think that. um, Yeah, so just for Yeah, so you know, so it depends. It depends on the level of sexual involvement.
0: Yeah, it's, it's always been interesting to me, the controversy. And I guess it's maybe because I'm coming from a point of view of like, I find men somewhat irritating. So maybe I'm just different. But, um, but I'm always like, I don't know why people, when they talk about, um, you know, controversial gender difference. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no ladies like, Oh, we can murder just as much as men murder. Right. You know, that's a good point. Anything like that. Yeah. You know, obviously, they'd be like, no, there's some serious gender differences that right. need to be addressed and studied yeah.
2: right here. Right, right. Um, yes. And so, anyway, there's there's just so much evidence that triangulates on the conclusion that um, men have different standards for casual sex than women do. So another piece of evidence is that if you ask somebody, what's the minimum acceptable percentile um, in somebody's, attractiveness or in somebody's intelligence. And so percentile, the way percentile works is, you know, those of you who've taken the, taken the GREs will we'll I'm going to remember. post
0: this graph, by the way, because it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Keep going. So,
2: yeah, so if you say you choose zero, zero percentile on intelligence, it means that it's the stupidest person on the planet. <laughs> yeah. If it's if it's 50%, then it means half the people on the planet are above and half the people are below. If you choose 90th percentile, then it means only 10% are above 90%. And so you ask people, what are their minimum standards? What is your minimum standard for intelligence in somebody that you would... go out on a date with, somebody that you would have sex with one time, casual sex with, somebody that you would marry. And um, what you see is that men's minimum standards um, are, are much lower, especially for a short-term sexual encounter. Women's minimum standards are actually higher for a short-term sexual encounter than they are for a marriage partner, especially when it comes to attractiveness, um, which possibly is something... Possibly because
0: if all you're getting out of this is good genes... Yeah, and possibly then...
2: if, if attractiveness somehow confers benefits on offspring either because they are themselves more attractive and better able to attract mates or because it somehow is linked to some genetic benefits um, perhaps you know health benefits um, or other kinds of benefits that if that's all you're getting then the guy definitely better be.
0: So um, so, um, so this looking. led you to so how would you think of error management? Okay
2: everyone? well so that's that's a, a little bit different phenomenon. Um, there was um, had been documented before this phenomenon um, where—that's a a little bit different idea, I should say. There have been documented before a phenomenon whereby, for example, if you ask men and women to look at a photograph of a woman smiling at a man and ask, you know, you ask, what is she thinking— um, or how interested is she, you know, how sexually interested is she in this guy, that um, women will look at that and they'll say, I give her about a four on a seven-point scale. And men will look at it, I give her about a five on a seven-point scale. She
0: wanted it. So, so,
2: that, so it's, a, it's a, so there's a, there's a, there's a um, and that's robust across many different ways of investigating the phenomenon. And so um, I wanted to know why is that the case? Um, and So with a fellow grad student and with my mentor at the time in grad school, we brainstormed about this. And what ultimately ended up becoming my dissertation was an explanation um, subsumed under what we called error management theory. And the idea is that um, under conditions of uncertainty, um, there are... Two kinds of errors you can make. You can either think that something, think that she's interested when in fact she's not, or you can fail to detect that she's interested when in fact she is. So you think about your smoke detector in your apartment. Um, The smoke detector is detecting clues of a fire, but they're not 100% certain. So there's a little bit of smoke, you know, maybe emanating from the burnt toast in your toaster. Does it sound the alarm or um, does it not? It's not a true fire. There's uncertainty. What engineers have done is they've actually set the alarm so that it is biased um, toward annoying people. Yeah, biased toward annoying people because that is the much less costly error than failing to detect a true fire. Um, And so the idea was um, that that men might have sort of a smoke detect the smoke detector principle might apply to men's inferences of women's sexual interest. So throughout evolutionary history, um, a woman smiles at a man. Does he, you know, the guys who thought, nah, she, she's just being nice, um, were probably not as reproductively successful as those guys who said, I think I'm going to pursue this. She might be really interested in me.
1: Right. Um,
2: so that was the idea. And that led to a variety of, of follow-up studies, follow-up predictions. Um, another idea that we tested that was part of my dissertation um, was that women might actually have a sort of opposite bias? They might be very conservative in judging that a man has interest in forming a long-term commitment because the costs to women throughout evolutionary history of, you know, thinking that you know, yeah, maybe he's interested in this for the long term, and then as a result of that, moving forward with
0: um, having a one-night stand and yeah, then he's out the door. And- that's
2: right yeah so you get You're the idea to
0: raise the child bias. you get
2: the idea, but that work as I said, that was sex dif- it was all sex differences um it was people were excited about it because it was a it was a new perspective on understanding why biases might have evolved in the first place, so you can apply that logic to any kind of judgment that somebody might make under uncertainty so um
0: um like like uh oh what what is the uh I, Kind of like the negativity bias, or uh, sure, like various kinds r- r- of negative, risk aversion, like,
2: various kinds of negativity like bias. People
0: will like work harder to avoid losing a hundred dollars than gain a hundred. And
2: and that might there might be a connection there. That's I I sort of think about that as being a more um, sort of abstract um, problem to solve and the way that we've applied error management theories by thinking about like really concrete problems that humans might have had to solve throughout evolutionary history. And so the losing or gaining a hundred dollars, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how our brains cope with the, the, this ultimately ultimate fungible resource cash, you know, in the modern world. Clearly we do it. Um, And they're they're really interesting questions. What the psychology is that um, is recruited in order to Manage those things which are evolutionary, no, evolutionarily novel, um, but things like avoiding people who are injured, um, because um, so. A group. I sorry, Shane. Um, to, to <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> on for, for, for salt in uh, your for, for the listener
0: <laughs> for the listener in May. Which well, I, I don't know when I'm releasing these, but anyhow, a few months ago, I broke both of my uh, my heels jumping off of something that was too high while hiking because. Um, my negativity bias wasn't working enough for me. It's because you had young male syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what it is? It's caused me a lot of grief in my life, Uh, that young male syndrome. Yeah, you poor thing. Um, And I've spent the last three months um, living in my parents' basement unable to care for myself. And now, now Marty is uh, telling me that people are going to avoid me. Well, I mean, I think, I I
2: think, I think, I think you'll be fine. I think you'll be fine. But um, (laughs) I've never heard this theory. Well, so there's a group, um, a Canadian group uh, led by Mark Schaller and others, interested in the psychology of disease avoidance, and they've developed a variety of hypotheses that are that hinge on error management sort of logic, Um, and one of them is that. Even people who we know, they have physical afflictions that we know are not contagious. Um, So people who are disabled, for example, um, people who just have unusual body morphology of some sort, um, that they, you know, and we know that there's stigma associated with that, but it raises the question, why? Um, And there are a variety of possibilities, but one possibility is that um, in the ancestral past, People did some managing of errors, and you know when you encounter somebody who is um, who prone to I-
0: jumping off of cliffs, for example, <laughs> who, maybe well, you don't who, want your kids. To, well, with that who, thing who, who is
2: injured? Um, it's unclear whether that injury is a result of a, um, something that could be.
0: Genetic no, no, no,
2: something that, like a communicable disease oh. um, versus something that is, is non-transmissible. And so people might have a tendency to overestimate, um, you know, or even if they're not consciously estimating this, they might have a tendency to sort of be over-inclusive in their avoidance of certain individuals.
0: Yeah, I mean, it might also, in my case, show uh, the conspicuous sign of poor decision-making, which, <laughs> which you may not want in the, in, in the father of your children uh, or your children themselves. Well, but, but, you're uh, recovering.
2: You'll, you'll no, be just fine. I like making fun of
0: myself. <laughs> I, I, once, once this is in the past, I'm not in crushes. I'll be able to make these jokes and people will laugh. Now every time I make these people jokes, just go about off. It, oh, <laughs> I feel so bad for you. I'm kind of over it. I've yeah. had my time to yeah. deal with it.
2: So I'll just give you one more error management example, which is, it's, I think, the least controversial. And that is there's some perceptual biases that are really interesting. Um, so if you approach a hill looking at it from the bottom as opposed to a cliff looking at it from the top. So it can be exactly the same, you know, so it could be a balcony. Oh, I read this yeah. recently. Looking at it from the bottom versus the balcony where you're standing on the top, you estimate the distance as shorter if you're looking at it from the bottom than if you're looking from the top. Right. And, and so that could be protective. Ah. Um, it can tell you that, you know, you really don't want to fall. Or, and it's, and it's Climbing worse. Climbing
0: might be okay. Jumping probably not Yeah, so and much.
2: it's worse if the person who's standing at the top of the hill is on a skateboard. So if they're, like, unstable, then they view it as even a larger drop. Ah. Um, and there's a the related phenomenon whereby um, the sound of um, some object that's traveling for so that you can these are experiments where you know experimenters set up cables um, and speakers moving on cables, and you can't you don't know where the you're blindfolded you're just listening, um, and you estimate that the sound is approaching more quickly, or the object is appro- is traveling more quickly if it's approaching you, as opposed to if it is moving away. Right. And that's thought to, from an error management perspective, motivate evasive action.
0: It's better to duck. It's better to it, duck. But if something's moving Earlier, away, you yeah, can just yeah. watch it move away yeah. from you.
2: Earlier as opposed to too late.
0: That's interesting. You know, I, and I do want to get back to the um, it, regrets thing before we go into oh, sh- what you're doing mm-hmm. now, just because... Um, yeah, that one is one that I think is amazing, but um, because I think I fell victim to it. Anyhow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, since you brought that up, mm-hmm. when you learn about some of this stuff, um, how how much attention how how much should people focus on it? Would you? I mean, that's such a broad question. But I, this this is why I'm asking this. I'm at the top of this cliff, right? Mm-hmm. And I was with a buddy at the time. Oh yeah. And I'm I'm uh, rock climb. Uh, you know, I've been rock climbing a lot. I'm in the best shape of my life at the time, so my confidence is probably a little higher than it should have been. And I looked over and we had a conversation for like five minutes. I was like, "This, I think this is too high." I think. <laughs> I think this is I, famous I'm, last words. I'm wearing, I'm wearing barefoot running shoes. There's a cliff there, so I can't tuck and roll. I'm going to have to take the impact with my legs. I'm at risk of breaking my heels. I even said that. Really? You can, yeah, you oh, can ask God. him because I've broken a heel before, so I kind of know. And then, and my my instincts were like, don't. Do, and but I consciously, I was like, well, if he thinks. Maybe I am just... Maybe it's this dumb negativity bias. That kicking oh, in. gosh. And, and, and maybe it is okay if, if my buddy's calling me a pussy, and here I am, a 34-year-old man, still can't handle being called
1: <laughs> a <laughs> pussy. And,
0: and so, so in that particular case, it would have been a very good idea for me to listen to my instincts. But... Um, the opposite example would yeah. be if me and most men in, in general followed everything every idea that our penises had you know we would probably get ourselves in a lot more trouble than we yeah. do so it it is hard even when you inform yourself right it's i think it helps and it's very interesting but it's still sometimes hard to be like Do I trust my instincts or what I've consciously (laughs) learned?
2: Yeah. Gosh, you know, that's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, as you anticipated that you kind of have to take that on a case by case basis. Right. Um, One of the things that's complicated, that complicates the answer to that question, even in a particular, in in this particular instance, a specific case, um, is that you have multiple motivational systems that are feeding into your decision about what you're going to do. So you've got like, you know... Self-preservation sorts of mechanisms that are telling you to not not jump off the cliff, and you know, and your proper estimation of the of the risk. And what am
0: I going to impress these ladies? Well, that are watching but you no? know, but then
2: you you know, you've also got this motivation that says, "Oh, don't be a wuss in front of your friend." Yeah, yeah, Um, and and the sort of natural tendency to second guess, you know, getting input from somebody else. I mean, social input. We know, you know, that affects our 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 view of the world. Um in probably most cases um and so there's there are multiple things happening at once
0: the whole web of causation i, I just suppose the message is uh, is obviously this life is very complicated but that's all the more reason to yeah. try to learn as much as you can about I, it yeah
2: i think so and so you know um one of the things that people ask me you so i, so I the the work that I do on changes um, across and, and we can return to the sexual regret stuff if you'd like okay, to but yeah, no but um, one of the things that people ask me about my work on changes in women's desires across the ovulation yeah, cycle let's just talk
0: about that yeah, for a while so, this I know this is what you're, <laughs> you're I I like that the whole time you're telling me how sick of you were of talking about sex, gender differences yeah. and well and you. so
2: yeah so so um, I mean, I still think that those are important phenomena. I think that um, I, I don't think that it's you know as clear cut as men are this way because of evolutionary bio, evolved biology, and women are this way because of evolved, evolved biology. I think it's I think that the story is complicated. I think that there um, are um, variations. I think that the variations are meaningful across contexts, and so the sex difference is going to be larger or smaller depending on context, and so on. So right. you know, I just want to say that right, right. that 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 it's not like black and white it's right. not it's not um i'm not saying men are one you know men are one way women are another and that it's not a comp- there's no complicated story to be told there anyone
0: taking that as black and white probably sees the world in black, Maybe. In black and white i uh, yeah it,
2: you'd, well, you'd be surprised
0: um, i so so this is what i find intre- since we're talking about gender differences and then your new work what i find interesting about the, your um, work on hormones and mm-hmm. the social effects is that you can tell people about gender differences, yeah. and they might be like, "Oh well, you know, any comic from the '80s could yeah. have told you that." My, Maybe my, not why that happened, but right. who could have told you there was different? But something like this hormonal that uh, yeah. stripper is making more money when she's <laughs> ovulating. Or that. So, sorry to break <laughs> right. up the most... Clear. Sure, my, my listeners haven't aren't familiar with. Of course, yeah, and
2: and in fact, the um, so. In parallel with some of the work that I was doing on error management theory, I'd gotten very interested in the question of whether it's actually true that the kinds of hormone effects we see in rats and chimpanzees and in a variety of other species, um, that female behavior changes fairly dramatically depending on whether females are fertile or not within their cycle. Um, whether it's true that that stuff is absent in humans. And so it was the conclusion, and it was widespread conclusion. This, I started this work probably a decade and a half ago, Um, was that ovulation is completely concealed, including from women themselves. And so the implication is that women's behavior doesn't change depending on whatever internal inputs there are coming from her body about her hormonal state that would affect then things happening in her brain that affect her sexual decision-making, her desires, and so forth. And I was just extremely skeptical um, that that was the case and so why you know just and to
0: I mean I I just read something recently mm-hmm. that's like even knowing about this stuff I still have my mind blown by things once in a while because you talk about changes in the brain I I was reading how how mice I know we're talking about mice I you know, I understand that but but mice have uh, females when they ovulate their uh or hypo, hippocampus or hippocampus grows yeah. for like two days and then shrinks again right. for two days and it increases memory or Yeah. And so
2: is. the kinds of, the, the, the changes, the dramatic behavioral changes you see, they're happening somewhere in the brain. So it's actually not surprising that you would see um, both functional and structural changes occurring in the brain. Um, you know, to what extent those things are happening in humans is just beginning to be investigated. Um, And so I wouldn't say that we know much about that yet. But we know quite a bit now about the behavioral differences. In any case, um, so the the starting point for all of this was ovulation is concealed, including from women themselves. I was very skeptical. Um, You know, Scientists by and large believed this because they saw really dramatic differences. So if you look at rat females, they will only have sex. Um, when they're fertile, They'll, otherwise they rebuff male advances. Yeah, in be, uh,
0: I mean, if they saw us, they're like, "What's this? What, this uh, couple doing uh, again and again <laughs> for two years straight? Waste, they've been at it. What a, what a waste <laughs> they have of one time. On
2: Yeah, what a waste of time." Um, you know, chimpanzee females show sexual swellings that males find very attractive. Humans, maybe, you know, unless you're, in humans find them
0: no obvious. Um, if
2: humans find the sexual swellings in non-human primates sort of disturbing, and right. um, and we clearly don't have those, right? You know, human females are, you know, don't have sexual swellings. Our bottoms are not swelling up, at, you know, one point in
0: the month. That would be so great. Yeah. Well, is.
2: it would. It, 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 anyway. It'd be good
0: for the yoga pants industry. <laughs>
2: um. <laughs> right. You'd need many pairs. Um, so. You know, and so the, the changes were likely to be um, somewhat different. So the human version of these changes, to the extent that they exist, is going to be different. Um, we began investigating. Um, you know, I started this work when I was in graduate school, and I have since continued it, and it's been the, some of the primary work that has kept me and my graduate students busy over the last decade. Um and we found things like um, that women's interest in men other than their romantic partners was greater on fertile relative to non-fertile days of the cycle. So just prior, to, so the fertile days of the cycle um, for a woman who has a twenty-eight day cycle is about two weeks in um, is the day of ovulation, and it's the fertile window is a couple of days. You know, it's the day of ovulation and a couple of days before that. And and what we saw was that. Um, women said that, mm, you know, I noticed an attractive guy around camp. And they noticed that, and they did that, they reported those kinds of things more when we asked them those questions on fertile days of the cycle than on, when we asked them on non-fertile days of the cycle. But um, that was particularly true for women who said, you know, my partner, he's a great guy, but, you know, eh, he's, you know, he's cute, but he's not the <laughs> sexiest guy around. And so it, it was as if women were placing a premium on physical attractiveness on fertile days of the cycle, and if their own partner was otherwise satisfactory, um, but perhaps there were Could more atta- very intelligent, <laughs> in all more this, more attractive but... guys around, then women started to notice other men. And so that was, those were some of the the findings that we initially published. Um, since that time, um, and there've we published related findings related to that now um many times um we've looked at the relationship implications of that so women who are partnered with the sort of um great long-term but maybe not so sexy as a short-term sex partner kinds of guys they feel less satisfied in their relationships when they're fertile within the cycle um they um they view their partners as having more faults at those points in their cycle. They don't actually feel any less committed to their relationships, which is interesting. So it's not like women want to break up with their partners. Um, it's just that they, they their their, interest, their sexual interest becomes somewhat broader. They're interested in other men.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I, was, I was going to write down because I was still listening. I was just, because I don't know what it is. I just kind of I read it recently is... Um, and, and when you yeah. said that they find more flaws, um, there's a. It was my understanding that is possibly controversial, but some sort of mate rejection theory?
2: Um, is there, well, so, well, there's one... I, I don't
0: care if you agree with yeah, it or not. I no, just don't I know mean, what it I, is. And so I saw so some, And I
2: sometimes get this, get this question, because I talk a lot about what is happening in the fertile phase of the cycle, um, but people are really wanting to know about other phases of the cycle. So what about the proverbial... Pre-menstrual, uh, syndrome days, um, premenstrual syndrome days, premenstrual syndrome symptoms. So do they exist? And um, and and from an evolutionary perspective, why might they exist? So I sometimes get this question. Um, there's one hypothesis out there. I think it's a little bit crazy, but, you know, crazy hypotheses are sometimes certainly worth exploring. Um, and that is that it's um, a mate rejection hypothesis. and so, What is? I honestly never, I don't know yeah. what it
0: is. I just saw those words. Okay, as,
2: and oh. it's, it's pure speculation at this point, um, and not my own speculation, by the way. This is um, speculation by some others, um, that if a woman has been having um, regular sex with her partner and has not become pregnant, um, and this has happened, let's say, Repeatedly over multiple cycles, that there might be some, you know, there might be some sort of an alarm that gets set off in her head, and when her hormonal profile that says maybe you're not fertile with this partner, and so this isn't actually working out, at least from a reproductive standpoint, which would have been right. the criterion for shaping those mechanisms over evolutionary time, um, that you know maybe it's time to. Um, you know, listen to your internal fertility goddess and dump them.
0: Oh, that's what it was. It was like these. Um, there's some species of of bird that's that's just in, incredibly um, monogamous. Like even even for birds, unusually monogamous. But even these birds seem to once in a while have um, uh, leave their partners and. It, typically, when that is, is, is when the female didn't reproduce that season and right. they didn't have any right. eggs. I think that's yeah,
2: what I saw. Uh, yeah. And and the two leading causes uh, causes of um, marital dissolution. These are data are somewhat are a little bit old now, um, but cross cultural study um, done some time ago um, by prominent anthropologists showed that the two leading causes of marital dis- dissolution across cultures were infidelity and infertility. So, if the relationship was, was failing to result in um, producing offspring, or if one partner or the other was unfaithful, um, both with of course, huge reproductive consequences, and so would be sensible things for you know to, I, to hypothesize might be um, predictors of relationship dissolution. Um, what is really fascinating to me, and I think is a big mystery, is given that um, and you know, a big mystery from an evolutionary perspective. Given that, how is it that people can stay in effectively infertile relationships for decades and be perfectly happy? Um, mm. And, you know, I think the answer to that probably has something to do with the really powerful um, psychology of pair bonding that humans appear to have. Um, so I've talked about short term mating, but there's also very powerful um, psychology of. Pair bonding and formation of long-term bonds, and that perhaps overrides,
1: right? In many well, kind cases,
2: kind of like when I
0: had asked you about um, the instincts and jumping? Uh, there's there's lots of different mechanisms uh, yeah, wor- at work right. in the brain at the that's same right. time, and so which one is necessarily yeah. kind of uh, like in, in your work, uh, for example, with um, with ovulation? It's sort of like um, the opposite of. Of a stress response, so you you you're in danger, and um, or you just break your feet or whatever it might be, and your your body needs to kind of shift um, shift energy to be okay. We'll we'll shut down um, we'll shut down the digestion for a while. You don't need to worry about adjusting mm. that meat. That's uh, uh, this is no time Low for priority. a Let's <laughs> just let's get you down off of this hill and uh-huh. just let's uh, shift more energy to to the muscles to get right. you to kind of like um, uh, Star Trek, or I don't watch Star Trek, but the um, new movies. Why am I talking about this? Um, <laughs> uh, being like, power down the shields and give all the energy to the torpedoes. <laughs> right. Or, and, and is that kind of, I mean, probably a horrible analogy, but a little bit of what is happening during ovulation.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um There is, so there, there, there's, that's, it's it's possible that um, at least, you know, perhaps on some more modest scale, something like that is happening. So um, women actually consume fewer calories on fertile days of the cycle. Um, And if you look at rats, um, and they and there's some evidence that they engage in more locomotor behavior as a psychologist would call it it means that they just walk around more so if you put pedometers ah. on women they're more active oh, they're, they're yeah they' they're, they're <laughs> like they're funny. checking out their environment more and the same thing is true in, is, is true in non humans so rats run in the wheel more on fertile days of the cycle is that That's crazy really it's interesting. crazy oh. um, and you know and so we don't know exactly why this is but one hypothesis is that women's priorities are shifting. And so it's less important to be fueling your body with the extra calories. Um, And so perhaps your appetite is reduced and therefore you're consuming fewer calories. So you're not spending all of your time foraging. And it's more important to be finding the right mate. Mm -hmm. Um, And now you wouldn't expect that for all women. You would expect that for women who maybe have not yet reproduced or they haven't had very many um, offspring. Is there any
0: risk-taking involved at
2: that? Uh, if that's, an, that's an interesting question. We just, um, this summer, started a, a, another big um, meta-analytic project looking at risk-taking across the cycle. So meta-analysis is when you collect all of the data published and unpublished that you can find and you put it all in one big statistical analysis and you ask questions, you interrogate the new, bigger data set and you ask questions that are more difficult to um, address with one-off studies, because one-off studies can sometimes seem contradictory. In any case, um, it, it um, there, it's possible that women are avoiding certain kinds of risks on fertile days of the cycle and um, pursuing other sorts of risks on fertile days of the cycle. So walking down a dark alley, uh, you know, right. a little less um, appealing on a fertile day of the cycle, right? Because who knows who you're going to meet there. Right. Um, but, you know, consenting to dance with an attractive stranger at a French nightclub, maybe that is something that women do more on fertile days of the cycle. So the risk-taking is likely to be domain-specific. Uh, it would be, would, that would be the, the psychological jargon way of saying that it's likely to, to depend on what the risk is.
0: Here's, this is probably a stupid question, but I, <laughs> just because... What you do um, with with ovulation, it seems it does seem um, it, even even if it's not completely hidden, it does seem very cryptic and mm-hmm. everything. Um, yeah. It has has anyone looked at any kind of quantifiable effect of of, <laughs> of male erections on like intelligence or anything? I would love to know. How many IQ points I'm dropping, you know, when I get revved up? Oh,
2: <laughs> wow! Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's hmm. like
0: the old um, adage of you know, men only have men have two heads and only one of them yeah, can yeah. think. It.
2: Well, so the the one study that that comes to mind, and this is a famous study, and so you may know about it, and some of your listeners may have heard about it too. Some behavioral economists were interested in um, what happens as a result of arousal on risky decision-making. And so they gave people um, laptop computers covered in plastic wrap. Um, Men, uh, laptop computers covered in plastic wrap (laughs) so that they could record their responses on the computer. Um, And then they had them masturbate and they asked them to respond to questions when they were aroused versus when they were not aroused. And um, men said that they would engage in more risky sexual behavior. So they would... um, you know, for example, that they would be that they would do more sexually coercive things, um, and I don't remember whether they looked at financial risk taking and, and that kind of thing. Mm. But um, anyway, so there's some precedent for.
0: I heard Dan Ariely telling. Yes, him. Is yes, it his work. I
2: think that this is his work. I've heard him talk about yeah, it.
0: Yeah, didn't they? Um, <laughs> didn't he basically uh, like have guys say like what number they were at from? uh zero, which is limp to ten, which is the end. Uh and and you know, in your building, um, like I'm at an eight or a nine, and they'd be like, stop and have them fill out some questionnaire <laughs> of like all these questionable ethic things. Right. That before that they were all kind of reasonable and what you would hope a human would answer. And right. then as soon as they're oh, yeah it's aroused, pretty it's
2: pretty amazing that that people don't I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that you can get people to actually report that they would do such different things just <laughs> as, as a result of being aroused. Anyway, I think that's really fascinating. I don't think we know enough about it yet. So I, I can't tell you how many IQ points you lose.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, well, I mean, because uh, <laughs> there's other ways to look at it. Because, I mean, sometimes uh, if you're if you're at a bar and trying to maybe um, go up and approach a mate, uh But perhaps it might be the other way. Perhaps you find yourself being really funny and charming and intelligent. Maybe maybe you gain in
2: mating intelligence, even if you're not gaining in you know life preservation intelligence. (laughs)
0: Right. Um, So, how has your work kind of affected your? You're married and you have two lovely children. uh So, so like when you first kind of, or you know, when you were. Earlier in your Mm. mating life in college, or Mm -hmm. when you met your husband, or whatever, did your research kind of shape how Mm. uh, some of the decisions that you made?
2: Yeah, um, it it, oh gosh, probably. Um, um, so
0: because uh, first, uh, when you say that women aren't like um, responding differently when they're obvious. Still, they aren't necessarily consciously aware, no. or at least not on the. No, no, um,
2: no. I don't. I, I don't think that I was consciously. I don't think that it was what I was consciously aware of that was driving my interest in this. I. I what I can tell you that is that um, I knew that women's desires and their behaviors were were shifting. variable. Yeah, that they, they were shifting. I mean, it was it was not clear exactly how they were coinciding with changes across the cycle, if at all. Um, but what I knew was that it wasn't that women were fickle, you know, it, what it was, it was that there was something I suspected that there was something systematic about the changes in what women desired. Um, and the fact that, you know, a man who was not really, you know, the, the highest priority guy on, on, uh, you know, at one point in time might all of a sudden become a little bit more interesting. Um, and that's really what the research supports. So, um, Women find men with sort of the suite of traits that we think of as being masculine traits, deeper voices. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, there's not a ton of data on, I mean, perhaps men who are more facially masculine, um, men who are more behaviorally dominant, so men who are more aggressive with other men, not like beating them up, but like saying, you know, I'm better than you. Um, women view videotapes. There's actually a study where women viewed videotapes of men um, who were competing for a lunch date. um, And the guys either said, um, you know, I, you know, you should, you should go out with me um, because I'm better than this other guy, or you should go out with me because I'm a really nice guy. And on fertile days of the cycle, women liked the guys who said, you should go out with me because I'm better
0: than this guy. Uh top, um, the top monkey on the, the Yeah, so, right.
2: So, so, yeah, I mean, the parallels, the, the, the parallels with non-humans are actually quite striking. Um, chimpanzee females, um, although chimpanzee, you look at what chimpanzees are doing say that looks, you know, it, and in fact, it is promiscuous. Females will engage in sex with um, many members of their male troop. Um when they're approaching the point of maximum fertility, they actually preferentially engage in mating with alpha male. And it's not just that the alpha male is somehow shooing all the other males away, but there appears to be something about female preferences that might be having an impact, or at least that's a plausible hypothesis. Um, and the same thing is true about baboon females. Um, so there's something about rank, there's something about masculinity Um, there is in in the human case, um, women are more attracted to men with certain kinds of body odors. So men who have met, so this is a
0: lot of your research. Um, well, we've,
2: we've done some, um, scent research and we've been inspired by some of these earlier studies, but the the earliest studies were so-called t-shirt studies. Men brought their, wore t-shirts two nights overnight um, slept in them, brought them to the lab, and then women came in and smelled them. And at the same same time that men brought their T-shirts in, they also were measured for symmetry, which is the extent to which the two sides of the body match. So you can measure the, your pinky length and compare and see, you know, how many millimeters different are they.
0: I have Wrist one foot that's width. way more swollen than the other foot.
2: That <laughs> <come>? <laughs> that's a temporary asymmetry. Right. Um <clears throat> Yeah, earlobe length. And, you know, so you can measure the two sides for any bilaterally symmetrical organism, and we are one of them. Um, at least our developmental plan is to develop as a bilaterally symmetrical organism. Um, you can measure asymmetry. And the thinking is why in the world somebody would do this? Um, the thinking is that we have this developmental plan for becoming bilaterally symmetrical organisms, but we encounter various stressors during development. Um, we may have genetic mutations that um, introduce errors. In into that plan. And so we can look to see how much it's do It's very, humans... very
0: difficult for that plan to go exactly, exactly right.
2: Exactly, exactly right. And, and so you can look to see how off-kilter it is and get a sense of how many things might have gone wrong in the organism's life. Um, and therefore, um, you know... An how...
0: evolutionary resume, kind of.
2: Sort of, yeah. I suppose you could think about it that way. Um, in any case, the guys who are more symmetrical... Um, their T-shirts smelled better to women who were fertile within the cycle than the guys who were less symmetrical. And that's now been shown in three studies. It's it's one of the larger effects in the cycle shift literature. So, you know, like I said, um, there's something about you know, being like the tough guy. There's something about being masculine, and there's also something about being symmetrical um, that women value more on fertile days of so the if cycle. If you're a
0: tough guy that's symmetrical, don't wear deodorant because people <laughs> like your regular. Yeah, it's a really interesting.
2: It's a really interesting question. What in the world are we doing, spraying? You know, you know what? All these um, perfumes all over our bodies when our natural body odors might actually be contain a lot of attract attractive um components
0: right oh, well i would like to have you on again some we're going to wrap up in a minute here mm-hmm. but i'd like to have you on again sometime just just to talk about um like bo kind no <laughs> no you're, you're kind of the differences with uh, in the modern yeah um oh yeah uh, world with uh i mean we're talking about sure podcast with your kids going to school and everything and how our ancestors were never really. That's right. All this time, they weren't sitting in desks. That's right. Yeah.
2: And, and and with respect to mating, I mean, most of it was happening before the advent. Nearly all of it was happening before the advent of cell phones, Facebook pages, online dating. Birth control. Birth control. Yeah, very important. A very important difference.
0: And I mean, you would think, uh, say, you could just build a human any way you would like. You you would think you would you would set puberty at like age 30 <laughs> <laughs> hey, go get your college
2: degree right. and get a job
0: right. do yeah. everything and then have these crazy that's right. hormones that's, that's, that that's make actually you a great point and, yeah
2: if we were to re-engineer childhood from the ground up we would probably do it
0: differently <laughs> um and then a quick before we go just because um uh, we talked about it so we should um the loose end of the gender regrets oh yeah right
2: sexual regret
0: because this this actually leads to one of one of the impacts that some of Mm -hmm. this research has had on like my own life
2: okay well so this was this was actually a project that was a holdover from my interest in sex differences um so it it was kind of a back burner project that had been um on the back burner for a little while um and so what we documented initially was um, that men if you ask so if you ask people about what their biggest regrets in life are, a lot of them will center on relationships and romantic interactions um, that's actually one of the most prominent sources of regret um, and so and that's actually been shown in um, a random digit dialing study where people were just you know, so we know that that, at least in the United States, is true of the population, assuming that that the random selection procedure actually worked, and I think that it probably did. So we know that romantic regrets are really important, um, and for both men and women. Um, but we had reason to believe that the nature of those regrets will differ somewhat for men and women. So men might tend to regret. The sexual opportunities that they'd passed up more than women would regret those. So they'd regret. Building
0: on the same ideas that we've been talking about. Yeah,
2: all. yeah, sort of. Yeah, related ideas. Um, so um, men might regret the romantic um, relationship omissions, the things that they didn't do that they wish that they should have, or at least the sexual omissions, whereas women might regret the sexual commissions. Um,
0: Marty's pausing to let her dog in.
2: (laughs) Um, So he can come back and meet with his pillow. Uh, So whereas women might regret sexual sexual actions that they engaged in, um, that they later decided weren't such a good idea. um, But what we found was that that's not just true. That's not true as a blanket statement, but it really focuses, it really centers on casual sex. So men regret the... sort of short-term opportunities that they think might have been there but weren't ultimately. Both men and women regret the long-term opportunities, like the fish that got away. Oh, but it's the short-term okay. opportunities, like if a woman was hitting on, on a man at a bar and he said, mm, you know, mm, I guess, or, you know, his buddy po- ends up pulling him out of the bar or whatever. Those are the things that tended to haunt the men in our study more than they did women. Um, whereas women regretted the casual sex that they actually did engage in. More than men did, which is not to say that men didn't, enga- didn't regret casual sex experiences. They really regretted when they got women pregnant or when they got an
0: STD. Right. But just
2: having casual sex um, was something that, that men tend to... Just t-
0: consequence-free. Yeah,
2: consequence-free <laughs> casual sex um, didn't, didn't t- tend to bother men as much as it bothered women. And what was really interesting, we thought, in this study was... Um, we documented those basic sex differences and we thought well this is you know we just we have undergraduates student samples here um you know this is this is a bit you know who who couldn't have told us that that we would find this so we did a um a big a broad internet based study in which we had you know people from all over the country it was posted on msnbc's news website um so we had you know 20 some thousand individuals responding. And as a consequence of that, we had substantial subsamples of um, gay uh, men and women. So we could ask the question: well, is it is it true for men across sexual orientation categories that they are that they regret sexual omissions, the, the sort of short-term fish that got away? Um, more than women do across sexual sexual orientation categories? And is it also true that women across sexual orientation categories regret casual sex more than men across sexual orientation categories? And that's what we found. So if wow. you looked at lesbians versus gay men, gay men regretted the short-term fish that got away um, more than lesbians, and lesbians um, regretted the um, casual sex opportunities that they took up. They later decided weren't such a good idea. <laughs> um, and that was actually also true for the bisexual subsample. So it was true across men, regardless um, men and women, across, regardless of sexual orientation category. And there were some differences, um, but the sex differences obtained across all of those categories of individuals.
0: It's funny. So how that did this affect I, you? I want to well, know. Well, ever since I, I, mean, I remember being in your class and hearing that, and I was like, "Oh, that explains so much of like these." I, flashes of memories that i get from you know high school yeah uh, you know, just hitting puberty and being obsessed with the ladies and everything and and i remember just you know i'd have a crush on a new girl every year and all of that and i'm like why <laughs> why in the world do i still think of it right
2: this? that's really it's interesting so crazy yeah.
0: that i uh, have been in many uh, wonderful relationships since, and uh, you yeah, at the time that I heard about it, I was in a very good relationship and and happy, and uh, and, and, it's, and
2: and the memory still stings. And, and it's the still, what if th- that I'm if like only
0: and and I know what some of these girls are doing now, which is hanging out in my hometown doing really nothing for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, no great. Job to speak of, and uh, they don't have a whole lot of great. Th- it's not like I missed out on a real prize necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and to think that I'm still dwelling on yeah, that. That's really interesting. That mm-hmm. given, <laughs> given. Yeah. And to th- uh, to think that at that same time. Every girl I've ever had sex with has the opposite regret. Like, oh, why did I?
2: <laughs> oh, that's probably not true.
0: <laughs> but, uh, but that just, it blows my mind and I think about it all the time yeah, and it, it cracks wow. me up. That's,
2: that's nice. I, that's, a, that's a really nice illustration. And that's, that's one of the things about, about regrets that's, that has made psychologists interested in them is that the um, omissions might actually have a lot of staying power. Um, the things that you didn't do that you could have, you right. know, sort of wistfully, you know, maybe if only I had, um, you know, gone to one school as opposed to another right. or, the, it, um, you know, the opportunities passed up seem to, seem to haunt us.
0: But still that gender difference in that. And yeah. and that's that's another thing that I like about your work is because when we talk about gender differences and we're very careful to say that it's not everybody <laughs> and all that. But... Certainly no one, uh, you know, sociologists or whatever else is going to say, well, the reason why you're getting your ovulation results is because society is changing dramatically during these three days. And then all of the universe is changing back after those three days. And that's why their behavior Shame. Uh, right,
2: and or that um, women somehow know when they're ovulating, and they've absorbed some media, you know, some message from the mass media that tells <laughs> them they should behave differently when they're ovulating. I guarantee
0: ninety-nine percent of people listening, this is the first they've heard uh, of any of this. Right. Uh,
2: Anyway, so that was the reason that I started to study those things right. was because they were more subtle, they were less susceptible to, the, um, you know, dozens and dozens of alternative explanations. Anyway, you can have me back on some other time. Absolutely, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about all the trouble that I've gotten in as yeah, a consequence of doing that would this be, research. Yeah,
0: that would be terrific. Um, but I did just, the reason why the regret thing was important, because hearing about that actually kind of... Took a burden off of Ah, my mind and and was like, oh, that's why I have these stupid memories that aren't useful to me in any way. Yeah.
2: And what what I would say about the ovulation cycle work, too, is that, um, you know, I, I guess I started to say this and never finished the thought, is that when... The media has taken some interest in, in it and and when reporters ask me about it, they say well so what's the take-home message for women and it's definitely and I'm almost like well what, what does she expect me to say women should cheat on their partners when they're ovulating of course that's not what I'm going to say of course right. that's not the take-home message but I do think that there is a take-home message and that is that um, if women know the source of these changes in their attraction to their partner who they may you know really value and they or you know and I mean, most women probably do. Really value their long term relationship, want to preserve it, want to make it happy. But if they understand that just because they're attracted on occasion to the next to the guy, at the next, which isn't going to be
0: the guy that you're attracted to when you're 60 years old. Well, and that's or... a,
2: it's, a, it's a perhaps a perhaps not right. um, that that doesn't mean that you don't love your long term mate, and it doesn't mean that you know, and you shouldn't. And, and I and you know, the more you know about what's driving your desires, the less I think you blindly follow them. Right. So if you know that. You know, chocolate cake is something that that you crave certain times, but it's not really, you know, what you want to do. And you choose to avoid it.
0: Feeling guilty about it isn't going to help the situation. Like, why am I having these?
2: Well, or, you know, just knowing that it's, um, yeah, it it doesn't mean that you don't love love your long term mate. It doesn't mean that you somehow have something that is lacking otherwise. And it just means that it's like this fleeting echo from the ancestral past. And women should decide what to whether they want to, you know, what they want to do with that. Do you want to go with what evolution shaped for purely reproductive purposes or do you want to um, do things that are going to meet whatever your other goals are in life?
0: Right, absolutely. Well, that is a wonderful message uh, (laughs) to leave on. I mean, I've always thought, because I'm so interested in all of this stuff, but at a certain point it's like, well, I don't care about my genes. (laughs) I care about my life satisfaction and my genes don't care about me. So knowing about some of this stuff can kind of help override some of those faulty decisions. That's right. You can,
2: you can hack around those adaptations. Right. Choose to, uh, to go with what makes sense for you and leave the rest behind.
0: Well, thank you very much for being my friend and being on my very of first podcast. Of course. Happy um, to. Podcast. And I can't wait to have you I back wish, to I promote wish you your... Um, great success. Oh, thank you. And I, and I want to have you back to promote your book, uh, Hormonal, mm-hmm. which is coming out um, early next It'll year. It'll be a little
2: while. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, but anyway, I, I'll have you back on then. Uh, you can follow at um, Hazelton on Twitter, and you can um, see some of her research and the stuff she retweets and all of that good stuff and uh, inform yourself with interesting things. And I'm, having, I'm not doing ads on this show I'm having each guest uh, promote a charity organization so that they enjoy. So with what uh charity? It's the
2: ASPCA. Um, helping um, dogs and cats without homes to find homes.
0: That's wonderful. So yeah. you can go on ASPCA.org. You can go on there. You can donate money if you like. If you're like if you're broke and don't want to do that, they have like walks that you can do. They have information for your local shelters that you can uh, go and help out at, and so you can do something good. Uh, give yourself a pat on the back, and then I get to give myself a pat on the back, imagining that you're. <laughs> I've inspired you to do good things, and um, thank you uh, very much for listening. Thanks, Marty Hazelton, one more time. Of course. And My pleasure. That's oh, all right. I'll talk to you next time. So that was it, everybody. The very first episode of the Here We Are podcast. We did it. Thanks for listening all the way through. You made it to the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I liked making it. Please go to the herewearepodcast.com website and give me some feedback, ask questions. What would you like to learn about in the future? Um, Books that you've read that you've liked, etc.? Go to com and you can check out my uh, specials and check out my tour dates and see when I'm coming to an area near you. But most importantly, if you can just tell 10,000 of your closest friends about this podcast and spread the word for me, That would be fantastic. Like I said, I've already recorded about 20 of these. They're all fantastic. You're going to be learning so much. We're going to have so many laughs along the way. And we're going to change the way that we see the world, all of us, together. Thank you very much, and I appreciate all of your support.
1: By random chance, with no hints at all As to how we're supposed to make sense of it all It's immensely bizarre Here we are Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we called clubs (laughs) discotheques? (laughs) LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban. And all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans. And pleated khakis had a really weird baby. (laughs) There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. (laughs) Scarface, 22 to 45.
0: <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic?
1: Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. One day. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even? Why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype, <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced Ve A Pe in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film. Smooth skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh,
0: my God.